Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes. It is neither investment, legal, nor tax advice and does not represent the opinions of the employers of the host or guest. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. The family office, a term that is surrounded by mystique. It conjures up notions of massive wealth, mahogany-infused offices, private jets, and money that has reached escape velocity. When one probes deeper, connotes secrecy, exotic opportunities and risks, and finally, rigid control. To get some color on this intriguing corner of wealth management, we're going to speak with Ed Marshall, head of the global family office at Denton's, the worldwide law firm. What is the reality behind the term family office? At what level do families bring it all in-house? What functions do they actually perform? And how much do they cost? For families that are intrigued, what questions should they ask before going down that process, and what should they focus on? This conversation will help to shed some light on these issues. Welcome aboard, Eddie. Hey, Fraser. Thank you for having me on. Well, it's great to have you on. You come from such a wide variety of backgrounds and uniquely set up to help people think about setting up structures for themselves and tackling different problems that they have. But let's start with something that I think is a loaded question, both for us in the industry, but for a lot of different clients. What happens exactly when someone comes to you and they say, I want to set up a family office? It means so many different things to so many different people. And from a vendor perspective, it can be difficult to educate those folks. How do you field that first question? Or maybe what's the checklist that you go through in your own mind to determine whether or not it's a good fit or not? I can relate to your frustration with the term because sometimes I think people think that family office is just a magical term and you said you're going to set something up and it's going to take care of everything and it's just that easy. And I think at the end of the day, if you look at family office as a concept, in addition to like an operational structure, you could think of the concept of answering one single purpose and that's to improve the quality of the life of the family. And everything rolls from that whether you're looking at issues around their finances, their operations, their structuring on the legal side, how they look at risk management or philanthropy or educating different family members, or maybe they don't even have additional family members. I think if you take it and put the family in the middle, then I think regardless of how you structure a family office, you end up with a better result. So when you sort of sit back and absorb a lot of different information that's coming from your family client, what are you looking for first? From a checklist perspective, are you looking at the amount of wealth to start with, the sophistication, the lack of or existence of lots of structure in place already? How do you get started with that? Part of it is a discovery conversation to answer a couple of questions. And one of them being, what are you doing today as far as your day-to-day operations as a family, with the different opcos and operating companies or investments and things that you might have that build into it. And what do you want to do? And then after you can have that general aspect of filling out what people want to do is how do you actually want to accomplish it? The answer to that, what do you want to do, of course, is seismic. Because many times, and I've seen it, that people have 
a very foggy notion of what they want to do. But then when you start laying in timelines and progress points and things like that, that discovery process becomes even more of a job than maybe that they thought of. And suddenly they're saying, well, you know, is this a good exercise or not? How do you see it from a law firm perspective where you're both dealing with the legal aspects, but you, given your experience within banks and financial services firms, et cetera, you come at it from a multidiscipline approach. How do you deal with the quarterbacking issues? How do you get the right advice to the client? Part of the issue is that you have two sides of a spectrum. People will go back to over-planning a situation or severely under-planning how they want their family office to look like. And Overplanning speaks to the checklist that you talked about. We're going to do this, 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 and this. It's going to be in this time order. It's going to look like this beautiful Gantt chart, and this is how we're going to accomplish your mission. Well, the reality is that most family offices come together a little bit like Frankenstein, and piece by piece, element by element, it doesn't always look like an elegant structure. To say that you know what you're going to need or want or your goals and your family are two, five, ten years, a hundred years from now is really challenging. There's so many things that can come up and change what those things look like. And I think if you fit somewhere in the middle and you tell and work with the client to understand that it's okay to not know every single item that you want to do today, that it's a process that you should go through to make sure that you feel that, again, you're focusing on them and their quality of life, the things that they want to accomplish how they want to accomplish it, and where to go from there. And I know that sounds relatively simple, but it's simple in nature of the concept. But I think too many people see the world through their own glasses, right? If you've got a hammer, the whole world looks like nails. And if you view it from a legal perspective, then you're looking for legal structures. From the accounting side, you're looking from the accounting piece. Or the banking side, you're looking at it from there. The reality is if you don't think multidisciplinary in your approach, you're going to miss the things that are important to that family and help them through that and help them through what they'd like to do and what they'd like to accomplish it and help them realize that there's an opportunity to build this in the way that it becomes something that works for you, not something that feels like you are working for it. What do you see in your practice and in your experience with families that want a quote-unquote family office, but in reality, they don't need everything under one roof that is hired and kept internally? And maybe a better way to phrase this is, how do you tell them or advise them to know what to keep in-house and what to delegate out? There's a lot of dimensions around the decision-making process if you're going to outsource or insource. A particular capability. Cost is a big one, as you can imagine. Bringing somebody in-house has a tremendous cost value because you've got that resource now that you have to look at. There's this rule of three when families start thinking about the family office process. I say it's going to take three years for you to feel like you actually have a functional family office. It's going to cost you $3 million, and you want to quit doing it three times during the process. So that cost is a big factor, even through all of those different elements, then where you are geographically. The talent pool could play into that tremendously. There might be more talent in the city where you live in, or you may have to go 200 or 1,000 miles away to get the talent that you're looking for in particular. 
especially if you're trying to do something sophisticated on the investment side. You might not have that talent locally that you're looking for because they might be in a different place or there might be a higher concentration of them. New York, London, Singapore, places like that. So it doesn't mean that it's a non-starter if you're not in those locations. It's just a factor that you have to look at in terms of human capital. There's such a demand for people who have the skills and the fit for working and the desire to work in a family office now that a human capital can be a challenge. Finding the right staff, being competitive on compensation and creative around different compensation structures can be very challenging for folks that are looking at this space. When people are looking for family office capabilities or setting up their own, how big a deal is confidentiality in the decision-making process? I, I would assume that if you're going to build a family office, you'd want to keep it under the radar, that that's part of it. But how much of that actually drives the decision as opposed to maybe some of the other functions? Well, in general, security and risk and threat management and privacy are top of mind for most people. I don't think most people would say that they're not concerned about those things. The problem with having success and having significant amounts of wealth is that it can bring unwanted attention to you and even more unwanted attention to you if you have a public profile. Privacy can also mean that you don't have the ability to get in contact with other family offices to trade best practices. And I think that's another issue for people to look at is a lot of what is in the family office world in terms of data and benchmarks can be opaque. And I think that's a challenge that families face is where do you go for a source of truth around compensation, around how this structure should look like, around what your profile for your philanthropic activities, what does good look like on all of these different areas? It's a delicate balance, and I think you can do a good job of it if you're able to bring in and have those connections to other family offices. Now, whether that's through the principals, wealth holders of the family, having those communications, or the ability of the family office executive to have that community effect, I think it's an important one, and you see it with all the different groups that are out there that try to connect and family office executives. It's an important aspect because there is a desire to know what are other people doing. And you see it borne out in research reports. We certainly at Denton's have put out a lot of research reports on this space, a lot of other interesting reports. But I think the more data that can be done and the more research that can be done in the space will only benefit these families of being able to know what are others doing. When we did our direct investing report, we cross-cut that data by size of the family office, the level of wealth different levels of complexity within the family office, geographic distribution, how many people are in the family office. Being able to cross-cut that data and say, okay, if I look like this, I have this level of wealth, I'm doing these types of things, what are my peers doing? I think that's an important one because if you try to put all of that data together and have a round number and say family offices do X, I think it's ascientific. And that ends up causing a lot of frustration because they look at a beautiful report, but they say, well, how do we make this actionable? How do I put this into play with my family? Or if I'm the executive, how do I put this in play for the family office? And I think that's a critical area that I think bears more exploration. Groups like the Ultra Net Worth Institute and others are working to help on that front because it comes down to, to the statistical end. The number of survey 
respondents you have has to be statistically significant for what you're looking for. So if you're only surveying your own clients, that puts noise into the data. So I think that's an area that I would say the industry, the vendors, the advisors to wealthy and successful families should take into consideration. By definition, you're dealing with the 0.01%, so the sample size is going to be naturally small. So you've got a natural tension there, of course. Tell me what you think about the environment we're walking into vis-a-vis regulation. Currently, family offices, at least in the United States, they get a break from the U.S. government in terms of reporting. But there's no question that with the Corporate Transparency Act and FinCEN and a general attitude toward knowing where things are going and possibly taxing them, that it's a fearful environment. How do you help family offices or maybe families as they decide to think about that transition, understand that regulatory environment slash risk? I think it goes back to whether a family office starting out or they've got an ongoing enterprise and you're working with them to do a bit of a gap analysis is to look at that risk management piece of the regulatory environment that they face. And their activities have a direct result on what regulations that could be important to them. Are you investing with other family offices? Is your investing schema taking in third-party capital. There's all these different regulations that need to be adhered to. It's a challenge. And you as a lawyer, you know this. It's the ability for one person to know everything is very, very difficult on all these different areas. It takes bringing in a team of advisors for a family. And sometimes as the family evolves, maybe not replacing some of those advisors because maybe they've been with the family for a long time, but maybe adding to or upgrading that capability or that knowledge base or the type of advisor that that family brings into. So it's that analysis on the gap, but then there's also things that will come up, piece of policy or a piece of legislation. There was a proposed piece of legislation in the previous Congress that was calling for increased regulation of family offices over a certain size certain activities that then a family office would have. It was very interesting to see because a lot of the conversations were around, one, is this a serious piece of potential legislation? Does it have an opportunity to pass? Those were conversations that happened a lot. And what does it do differently than current regulations of family offices that family offices are subject to? Is it something in addition to? Is it duplicative? How would you actually go about regulating net worth? And how would you look at net worth from a regulator's point of view? So I think that when those instances come up, the ability for the family to have good counsel on those issues is critical. The ability for them to work with each other on that, I think, is critical. There was some groups that were trying to formulate advocacy on these issues, and certainly around the time of when the family office rule came into existence, and this next time around, more recently. But I think at the end of the day, it's that annual checkup that can be a a very healthy one or some sort of periodicity checkup on these types of issues just to help you build a more sustainable structure and feel like you're not just putting out fires. You've got a plan. This leads in Nicely into something that I'm always thinking about, certainly on the trust side of things, or when structures are put in place and it all looks nice and the flowchart is shiny and clear in, you know, year zero. 
but then it moves into year three, year five, and it can become clunky or it can become really clunky when it hits the next generation and beyond. Family offices, I imagine, are probably similar in some ways. And with that in mind, what are the big mistakes that people make when setting these up, when families set them up either to accomplish what you're talking about in terms of fulfilling goals and getting them where they want to go, or maybe for less good reasons like vanity, et cetera, where do they run up on the rocks? What should big families and advisors around them think about? Well, one of them that we've already talked to is planning, is to have some semblance of a plan. It doesn't have to be a 50-page PowerPoint presentation of how the family's going to do absolutely everything, but it's some semblance of a plan especially if you're going to bring on staff and what that staff are going to be doing for you internally and how are they going to interact with all of your external advisors. Your requirements are that you can't necessarily insource that staff for you. That plan is important. I think keeping it simple and not trying to overcomplicate things is an important piece as well and a good part of success. When there's new liquidity or a change in circumstances where there's this desire to create a new family office or build a family office or work with different advisors to have something that looks like the prototypical family office. Sometimes the best advice is to hit the brakes and make decisions slowly so that you can have something sustainable for the future because you rush to hire staff or you rush to go into a certain direction and you could be hiring the wrong folks. And at the end of the day, that tends to be an issue as well. So it's really around having that plan. Stress testing that plan is also an important piece. What do you do when something goes wrong? What do you do if there's an issue in the family on a health side, a death in the family, a security issue, a cybersecurity breach? How are you stress testing your family office on just the operational piece? I think it's certainly very interesting to talk about the finance, the investments, the accounting, and all these other pieces. But if you don't get the operations right, you're again not putting the family in the center of the existence of this entity that you call a family office. What do you think about family members actually participating in the operations of a family office? Or I guess technically speaking, having them employed by the family office to do certain functions. I can imagine that For those who have the talent and the acumen and the interest in doing it, that's a great way to get them indoctrinated into the wealth and get them to understand the larger vision of the family. I can see it on the other side of things where that's just a vessel to keep people busy that that can get ugly very quickly. I think it's a mixed bag. When you talk to a family and they try to decide what they're going to do with this family office entity that's separate from the business or however it may be structured, that is a conversation that has to come up. And the same thing would be for an operating company that the family is part of, if they are. Is it important to have family members as part of the family business? That's up to each family to decide because these entities, these family offices are a reflection of what the principals want to do. And it's their money. So they can do with it as they choose. And I think that's something that I think of a lot of advisors don't take that to heart as much because they'll come with a prescribed checklist. This is how you're going to do it. This is a suggested thing to do. Here's what's there. And again, it's not putting the family at the center of what they're 
trying to accomplish and how to make their life better. The importance of all of this is your desire to know how each family member wants to participate in a family office is a critical piece because one of the families that I worked with said that it took us three or four generations to realize we didn't give birth to private equity professionals. So there's a level of talent and interest that's important. And you can see all sorts of potential downfalls if you're saying that this particular family member we're going to encourage, is a nice way of saying, to be part of the family office or family business can have downside effects for that person's growth and their maturity and what they want to go do. On the other side, if they have a great interest in what's going on for the family and maybe they're interested in the philanthropic side of the family and they really want to cut their teeth into it, that could be an interesting piece and part of the puzzle for them to be involved with. But it has to, again, take into consideration talent and mission. From a rule of thumb perspective, and obviously these costs are all variable, but what is the right level of wealth? What is a good range of level of wealth where people should consider bringing a lot of functions in-house and at the same time not burden themselves too much? Sometimes that question can be framed as, you know, what is the general percentage drag on wealth that a family office represents or doesn't make sense unless you're worth $1 billion or $1.5 billion before the costs kind of justify it. How do you think about that cost component? Well, I try not to think of it as an overall balance sheet exercise. I try to think of it as a cost exercise. This is what it's going to cost to have this particular function in-house. This is what it's going to cost to have this particular function outsourced. And if you build it both from a strategic standpoint, top down and bottom up, you end up with a better appreciation for what the family actually wants to accomplish, where the chess pieces end up on the board. Instead of just looking at a straight AOM factor, you're looking at cost. And that rule of thumb is starting around a million dollars of cost. You're adding in the different levels of insurance that you have to pay for, the different levels of employment issues that you have to take into consideration around employment law and benefits and compensation and all these different pieces. So I like to think of it from a cost perspective and giving it the opportunity to run more like a business, even though many of them are not a business in the traditional sense where they've got some sort of revenue minus the investment piece. But if you look at it from that angle, I think you end up with a better result as part of it. Well, this is really insightful. Tell us a little bit about Denton's. Tell us a little bit about the family office practice and where we can hear more about the studies and the research that you're doing and the different materials that you put out like your podcast. First of all, Fraser, it's fun to be on the other side of this thing, but I think I like the questioning side better. I really uh, do appreciate being able to come on for this today. Denton's is a large law firm. It's the biggest law firm in the world in terms of headcount and offices. We're about 13,000 lawyers around the world, 200 plus different offices. And we focus on a lot of different areas of the law, as you can imagine, with that many different lawyers. But our practice is a cross-divisional one around family offices and high number of individuals and family businesses, where we bring in about 350 of our colleagues that have 
identified that they work with family offices. And it might be a securities lawyer in one jurisdiction. It might be a real estate lawyer in another jurisdiction. They all have family office experience and that work together. And it's a really fun environment because we get to trade best practices and what we're seeing that works, what we're seeing that doesn't. And then being able to look at potential pitfalls our clients could be facing in different parts of the world. So on one side, we've got the legal structure and all the legal work that we do. And then our family office practice acts as a strategic management consultant. So we'll come in with a family as they're building a family office, whether it's from scratch or they want to work with somebody, they've got an ongoing family office and they want to have somebody analyze and do sort of a readiness assessment of an existing family office. So take everything down to the bare metal in terms of that investigation and then build it back up. Or it could be a particular project or capability or a function that they want their family office to take up. That's an interesting area for it. And allows for us to do a lot of great collaboration across the firm and beyond. And it's great to work with you and on a number of matters. It's an interesting place because you're working with builders and you're working with innovative families that are very influential in what they're doing. So it's a tremendous amount of fun. Terrific. What's the best way to find you on the web if people are interested in hearing more? Our website for family offices, dentons.com, D-E-N-T-O-N-S dot com forward slash family office. So dentons.com forward slash family office. All of the white papers and research that we talked about are on there. And if you have any questions on that, we've got some forms that you can fill out or you can just email me. It's firstname.lastname at Denton. So edward.marshall2ls at dentons.com. And we'd be happy to have a chat. I'll have all that information on the show notes as well, so people can look down and copy-paste as necessary. Eddie, thank you so much for coming on. Really insightful things. Yeah, this is great, Fraser. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually. Fraser Rice is an employee of Next Capital Management, LLC. This podcast is not investment, legal, or tax advice, nor does it reflect the opinions of Next Capital Management. Any opinions represented in the show are Fraser's individually and not an endorsement of the guests.